Actually, earlier, before we start, when Flick told us to turn to the person next to us and tell them about our favourite piece of music, it reminded me of a story from a Christian festival that I went to a few years ago. Um, I went to this seminar on uh, music in churches, and at the beginning, the guy who was leading the seminar was clearly very nervous. I found out later that he hadn't done it before. Um, big conference room, lots of people there, and uh, he was kind of you know, shaking and kind of stumbling over his words a bit at the beginning, and, and, and he thought he'd ask a similar question to Flick, just to, you know, kind of uh, try and get rid of the nerves, you know, lighten the tension in the room a bit, and he said, can you please tell me, shout out, stick your hands up and shout out, the worst record that you've ever bought, go, and so somebody sticks their hand up and goes, I bought a Robbie Williams album once and it was terrible. Somebody goes, I bought a Jive Bunny album when I was in the 80s. Anybody remember Jive Bunny? I don't think that would have been a worse record ever. I loved that when I was about eight years old. And loads more like this. He was just sticking their hand up and shouting out. And it was great. It worked perfectly. People are laughing all over the shop. Everybody else is shouting out, oh yeah, I did. I had that Robbie Williams album as well. It's terrible. All this kind of stuff. And then the guy sat next to me put his hand up and he called him and he said, yes, you. And he said, oh, uh, uh, about five years ago, um, I went into a record shop. Um, and I bought this uh, death metal album, um, and it really uh, affected my life, and um, I stopped going to church, and I started to get involved in the occult, and I got really into uh, Ouija boards, and I did some, some terrible things, and, uh, and, I, and I, I couldn't get myself out of it, and, and, then, and then a week ago, Jesus spoke to me, and I'm really glad I'm here. And the guy at the front just said, oh, oh okay, oh, oh. mine was going to be take that. <laughs> anyway, nothing to do with today, just reminded me of that story. And we are going to start with a quiz. How exciting is this? Um, I have six questions for you uh, about songs in the Bible. Um, and the answers are taken from that super reliable reference source, the internet. Uh, if you get them right... Um, there are wine gums for you. So the first question is, how many songs are in the Bible? This is where the lyrics to the song is in the Bible itself. This is not uh, things that people think might be songs, might be poems. It's not places where um, it says, and then the people sang to God. This is actual songs, lyrics in the Bible. Hands up, please. Anybody. There is a wine gum, don't forget on this. Yes, one at the back. Three. It's a good starter. It's a little bit higher than that. 200. That's close enough. I'm going to give you a... You get a yellow one for that. If you were right, you would have got a red or a black one, but because you were just kind of right, then you get a yellow one. The answer is 185. Question two. Of those 185, how many of them are in the Psalms? This should have given you a clue that it was more than three. There's a book called the Psalms in the Bible. Very good. Um... Uh, how many in the Psalms? 100, no, nearly. You don't get to do your volunteering on the sound desk, you can see the next slide. 150, yes, that's the actual answer, which means you get to choose your own wine gum. Woo! Uh, too late. Um, next question of those 150, how many of them were written by David? 100, 120, some terrible putting hands up here. If I was a teacher, I wouldn't be very happy with this. This is lots of shouting out. 70, 70. Well, that's the closest. I'm not going to come all that way up there. I'm going to throw this, okay? Whoa. Yes, Jerry, that's a great catch. Um, that is the actual answer to uh, that is uh, nobody knows. Um, um, 
the answer is about 70 odd, depending on which uh, place you go to have a look. Um, I've just completed uh, an MA in pastoral ministry, so with a theology master's. This is the kind of theological detail that you get on a Sunday morning. Nobody knows. Um, we have a couple more. Who is the singer of the first song in the Bible? Oh, no, nearly. Some, two people shouted that out. That was... No, 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 no. Earlier, earlier. Exodus chapter 15. I'm, I'm literally this far from eating this myself. <laughs> the answer, which none of you got, is Moses. Uh, Exodus 15, Moses sings a song after the children of Israel safely cross the Red Sea. We've got two more. What's the longest song in the Bible? Psalm 119. The McAllisters are doing well today. Oh, a bit short. And... Is it working? Sounds like it's working. Oh, it's sticking out. Um, yeah, 1,732 words, apparently, in Psalm 119. And one more, quite difficult one, I think. Um, what are the words to the shortest song in the Bible? Anyone? This is found in two separate places in the Bible. There are seven words. The answer is... He is good. His love endures forever. You can find that in 2 Chronicles, chapter 5, verse 13. 2 Chronicles, chapter 20, verse 21. And in the book of Chris Tomlin, chapter 5, verse 8. Oh, you could do if we had any sound. Um, so, I found it incredibly difficult, actually, to pick one song to talk about this morning. Um, uh, Steve picked this series, as he often does, and you can always tell it's going to be a difficult series when Steve then follows that up by saying, I'm not going to be there to do any of these because I'm going abroad. Um, it's actually quite more, it's a lot more difficult than, you know, when you get given a book or a passage or a topic or something like that. Because how do you choose the one song that defines you. I'm very much into music. Most of you will know that I sing and play guitar um, in church here. I've been in countless terrible bands over the years. I've been to thousands of gigs. I've been to Glastonbury multiple times. Uh, Louise and I on a work night once drove from Swansea to Birmingham to go and see an artist that we'd only discovered the day before. I've got hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds literally of CDs in an attic back in South Wales that I haven't even got access to. How do you pick one song. So I thought about picking my favorite song. Um, then I thought about picking maybe the first song that I learned to play on the guitar. Then I thought about picking maybe uh, talking about the song that Louise and I had as our first dance after we got married. I mean, I definitely couldn't have made a 20 minute talk out of that, but it would have got me some serious brownie points, wouldn't it? So I thought about lots of different ones, and eventually I managed to limit it to one artist at least. This is a guy called Martin Joseph. Um, many of you, I'm sure, would have heard of him. Lots of you, sadly probably for you, would have heard me regale you with numerous stories over the years of gigs that I've been to that, um, that I've really enjoyed. But uh, for those of you who don't know, who have managed to escape me talking about him, he's a Welsh singer-songwriter who plays an acoustic guitar and writes songs about Wales, politics and social justice. 
After that description, I'm sure that those of you who know me are shocked that I think he's great. Um, if you haven't heard his music, you really should. But for the full experience, you really should go and see him live. I think it's a genuinely soul-affirming experience to do such a thing. There's one video of his on YouTube. It's a live cover of a Bruce Springsteen song called One Step Up, where he plays the song, and then while he picks the chords for another five minutes at the end, he explains the song, why it means so much to him and why um, the song is such an important song. I checked this during the week and it's had about 33,000 views on YouTube, which surprised me because I think I've probably watched it about 25,000 times on my own. Um, there are so many of his songs that I could talk about, but when I was trying to pick, I realized that many of them, um, the thing that they had in common was that they were just my memories and they weren't much more than that, really. One quick example, a few years ago, I saw him at the Greenbelt Festival. Um, the queue to get into the venue was such that he started about 20 minutes late and he was headlining that night. Um, and when he got towards the end of his set, they had broken the curfew. They got to the point where they couldn't sing anymore because the license that they had was only until midnight or whatever it was. And they had shut the festival down. So the venue manager ran on stage and said, I'm really sorry, you can't do any more because we're going to get into trouble. It could close the festival down. So he pulled out the lead of his acoustic guitar, turned his microphone away, walked unplugged to the front of the stage, and then led the crowd in a sing-along of one of his songs. It's called There's Still a Lot of Love Around Here. It's an affirming song, a positive song, about the strength of having a community around you when you're struggling. It was an incredible experience to be there at that moment. And then as we all filed out, queuing for the exit of this venue somebody pitched it up again and we walked out into the night on this glorious bank holiday evening thousands of us walking out singing there's still a lot of love around here and that was a great thing it was a fantastic evening but it's just my story isn't it and that's the thing it's just my memory it doesn't mean anything to you guys and the thing about Martin Joseph that I love so much is that the one thing above all else is that he writes songs that force you to look outwards. They're not internally. They, live, they tell you to live your life far beyond my story and my memory. They tell you to get out into community and change things. So by picking one of those songs, one of my stories, one of my memories, I feel like I'd be doing him an injustice. So the song I wanted to spend a little bit of time talking about this morning is called Proud Valley Boy. And it's written, like lots of his older songs, uh, in conjunction with a poet called Stuart Henderson. Uh, Stuart Henderson writes a lot of lyrics and Martin Joseph puts them to, to song. Um, and for a few years, Martin Joseph had wanted to write a song about this man, Paul Robeson. Um, I don't know if any of you are aware of the story of Paul Robeson, but he was a hero of, of Martin Joseph's. He was born in 1898 in New Jersey, the son of an escaped slave. He was a genius, and when he was 17, he was offered a scholarship to Rutgers University, a prestigious university in the States. He was only the third black person ever to study there. Not only was he a genius in the classroom, but he was also a genius on the sports field. But he had to suffer horrific racism, never worse than when he was on the sports field. Loads of other universities refused to play sport against Rutgers if Robeson was in the lineup. But despite that, 
He represented his university at baseball, at basketball, at track and field, and at American football. He became one of the best American football players in the country and was named in the All-American football team for the last two years that he was in college. And he's also a genius, as I said, and he graduated top of his class. He then moved on to Columbia Law School, which he paid for by teaching Latin on the weekends and playing professional American football on the weekends. That's how he got through law school, by teaching Latin and playing professional sport. When I was at university, I worked at HMV. <laughs> anyway, so Robson graduates from law school and gets a great job at a law firm, but he leaves it because a white secretary refused to take direction from him. So what did he do? Well, he just got up and moved on to one of the other million things that he was amazing at and became a world-famous singer and actor. And it's through this that the story changes a little bit. A day came that changed many lives. It was 1929 and Paul Robeson was the lead in Showboat in the West End. He had done a matinee performance and he was walking back to his hotel when he heard what he thought was a choir singing so beautifully that it stopped him in his tracks. Then he realized that the noise was getting closer to him. It came around the corner and when these gang of people came into view, he realized that it wasn't a choir at all. It was actually a protest march. They were a gang of Welsh miners from the Rhondda Valley. They had taken part in the general strike in 1926, and as such, they'd been blacklisted by their employers, and they'd failed to find work since. And so starving a couple of years later, with no other idea of what to do, they thought they'd walk to London to petition the government to see if they could get anything. Uh, while they were doing that, while they were walking towards this, they were singing to try and raise money to keep them going. They told Robeson their story, and immediately Robeson empathised. He joined in with them, he walked the streets of London with them, he listened to their songs, he hummed along with them, he learnt the tunes and he joined in. And then a bit later, he jumped up onto the steps of City Hall in front of them, and he said, let me sing you some of my songs. And he sang some of the songs that he had made famous in Showboat, and he sang them some of the old spiritual songs that he had learnt in his church when he was growing up. They were songs that told of sorrow, but also songs that told of a brighter day ahead. For those miners, the first of those brighter days was that very day. Robeson paid for them all to get back to the Ronda in a freight train stuffed with clothes and food that he had paid for out of his own pocket. But it didn't stop there. He came to South Wales. He'd found a kindred spirit here in this mining community. He came to South Wales. He did tours in South Wales, and he gave all the funds to the Miners' Relief Fund. Um, he uh, toured Wales time and time again over the next few decades. Far more stories that uh, I could tell this morning. This photo was taken uh, in Ebbo Vale, in the town where I grew up, when Paul Robeson played at the National Estesford. My parents were up for the weekend. My dad was there. Um, he was eight years old, apparently, and my grandparents took him to see Paul Robeson at the chapel on a Sunday night. How amazing is that? When I was a kid, my parents took me to see Ishmael and Dave Bilbra. Not the <laughs> Not the same level of cultural significance there, two 80s Christian singer-songwriters. But anyway, um, Paul Robeson was a man who spent his life having to fight against the establishment. And he found kindred spirits, as I said, in the Welsh mining community. He loved the similarity that he found between choirs singing spirituals in the church of his youth in the USA and choirs singing hymns in Welsh chapels. There are far too many stories to tell. Those of you who have been around more than about three weeks will know that I love telling a story. But there are too many stories even for me to tell. If you don't know much about Paul Robeson, I really would encourage you to find out some more. 
Um, but back to Martin Joseph. He said that he had tried on a number of occasions to tell the story of Paul Robeson and Wales in such a way that kind of made sense, that did justice to this amazing story, and hadn't really found the angle that worked, hadn't found the angle that fit. So he spoke to his friend, Stuart Henderson, who was a poet. Stuart worked and worked and worked, and eventually he sent the lyric over, and Martin got to work on writing a tune. The song's story is told from the viewpoint of Evan, a retired Welsh miner who's looking back on the visits of the great Paul Robeson in the 40s and 50s. Um, he's a miner who was uh, forced into unemployment when uh, the mines were closed by the government in the 80s. Um, and then he's forced onto a government retraining scheme and he has to learn to type. And he tells the story of when Paul Robeson came um, to his town. Martin Joseph says the narrative is a Welsh miner called Evan who's looking back on the visits of the great Paul Robeson when his back was to the wall and about how somehow, somehow that deep, beautiful, spiritual voice put a fire in Evan's belly and how even now, in the last chapters of his days, it brings him hope for his grandchildren and for his future. Let's listen to the song. A dragon came here once and he didn't let us fall. He fed us as he sang, as we limped back to Porth Call. Um, there was a, a place in South Wales where there's a strong mining community. They had a miner's like Stedford in a place called Porth Call that Paul Robeson came and sang at. Uh, a dragon came here once and his heart was all our pain. He was our advocate of hope. He was my defender in the rain. Uh, Evan, who's the fictitious miner in this song, was changed by listening to Paul Robeson. Countless real miners were changed by listening to Paul Robeson. For me, those are the best songs. The songs that have the power to change people. Don't get me wrong, I've got nothing against a, a pop song that promises nothing other than escapism for three minutes. I've got two small kids now, so I'm learning to love Taylor Swift and the Troll soundtrack. But for me, I'm far more interested in the power of music to change us. That's why Paul Robeson is important to me. That's why Martin Joseph is important to me. I walk away from Martin Joseph gigs genuinely challenged to become a better person because of the songs that he's written. Songs change people. Paul Robeson and Martin Joseph are both part of a tradition of protest singers, those who try and change the world for the better through the songs that they sing, from Billie Holiday to Billy Bragg. There have always been people who fight for justice and a better world through song. Paul Robeson sang to the anti-fascists fighting in the Spanish Civil War. He gave royalties to Jewish refugees fleeing Hitler's Germany. He performed at strike rallies and he spent so much time traveling the world singing songs about justice that the US government thought he was a political risk and took his passport away. Songs change people. This is Martin Luther, 16th century theologian, the man behind the Protestant Reformation, which cha changed, transformed church and society. What's less well known about Luther is that he also had a huge influence in the music that we now sing in churches. Until Luther, the Catholic Church tightly controlled all religious music. It was very straight, very plain, very sparse Latin music, nothing in the culture or the languages of the people who were going to that church. Um, but Luther changed all that. He said music should be accessible to all. And he wrote this, by embellishing and ornamenting their tunes in wonderful ways, singers could lead others into a heavenly dance. Luther wrote lyrics in common German, his mother tongue, no more Latin. And he put those lyrics to the tunes of the pop songs of the day. 
so that everybody could pick them up quickly. At this time, about 85% of Germans were illiterate, but could pick up and pass on simple songs set to popular tunes. The songs spread like wildfire to the point where Luther would go to a new town to preach, turn up, and find that all the people in the town already knew his songs. So, as Christians, we have this wonderful history, this rich tapestry of people who have used the power of music to change people from Luther in the 16th century through Paul Robeson to Martin Joseph and beyond. But I think it begs the question, what about the songs that we sing today? What about the songs that we sing in church today? Here's a, a really short clip of a song written by the band Delirious called Our God Reigns. I'm guessing that you probably recognize it. We've sung it here on a number of occasions, but when we sing it here, we just sing that bit, don't we? We repeat that bit. We use it as a refrain often tagged on to the end of another song. We repeat that over and over again for a few, uh, for a few minutes. But um, here are the words to one of the verses of that song. 100 million faces staring at the sky, wondering if this HIV will ever pass us by. The devil stole the rain and hope trickles down the plug, but still my Chinese takeaway could pay for someone's drugs. It's a bit different, isn't it, to what we usually sing on a Sunday morning. Uh, Martin Smith, who's the lead singer of Delirious, uh, said that he thinks the reason that the verses of this song aren't sung by churches is because they're too unpalatable. They're too difficult. I'm not absolutely sure I agree with him, but if that is true, what are we doing here? What is the point in us getting together to sing songs? If there are songs that are too difficult for us, what are we doing here? Now, don't get me wrong, there's obviously a place in a service for songs of praise, for songs of adoration, songs with few words, or like we heard earlier in communion, with, with no words, songs that give us space to reflect on the glory of God. But if we end up only singing those, and we don't also sing the heavier songs, the songs that look at the world and say, this is not God's plan, and we are the people who are meant to be doing something about this. If we're not singing those songs, I think we're doing something wrong. Luther understood that music is one of the best ways to pass on a message. We get our theology from songs. How much easier is it to remember lyrics than quotes from sermons? We've just sung Amazing Grace. Let's do another bit of audience participation. Join in with me without the words there. Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now. We all know it, don't we? We all know the words. We get our theology from songs, often. So there's a real responsibility on the shoulders of the songwriters, the poets, those of us who stand up here and lead bands on a Sunday morning. Um, we have a responsibility to choose the songs that we sing, and it's our task, really, to find the protest songs, to find the songs that tell of a greater truth that change people. Scholars talk about a concept called collective intentionality. It's the power of minds to be jointly directed at objects, matters of facts, goals or values. When we get together with a single goal, it's a powerful thing. So how do we draw all this together? We've got Pauline read to us from the book of Isaiah. Well, it's a theological uh, Walter Brueggemann who's written a book called Hopeful Imagination. And in that, he talks about the importance of the poet, the songwriter, in the time that Israel were in exile. The book looks at the time, 
that the people of God spent in the wilderness in the books of Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Isaiah, starting in Jerusalem in 587 BC after the city has been destroyed and the Israelites start their exile. Brueggemann quotes another theologian called Gerhard von Rad, and he says it's the poet who prophetically calls the people forward. Von Rad looks at the key verses that Pauline read to us from Isaiah 43. It says, forget the former things. Do not dwell on the past. See, I am doing a new thing. That's what verses 18 and 19 say. Now, for the people of Israel who first heard these words spoken, this was a hugely important moment. Before this moment, the people of Israel were harking back to the past. And the poets, the songwriters, the prophets, they were all doing the same thing. They were writing about the old traditions, basically spending all their time telling people about the good old days, about how good they used to have it, how much better it was back then. But Brueggemann and Von Rad say that these verses, forget the former things, do not dwell on the past, see I am doing a new thing. They say that those verses were vital because this now, these were the words of the poet saying, we're in exile, we can't keep harking back to the olden days. We've got to move forward. We've got to tell stories of a brighter future. Brueggemann says, the poet in exile sings his people to homecoming. The gospel is that we may go home. The poet in exile sings his people to homecoming. The gospel is that we may go home. What does this mean? Well, when the Israelites were far away from where they believed that God had called them, the poets told them the story of the gospel. And the gospel was, we will make it home. There is another way. There's a better day coming. It's the same song that Paul Robeson sang all those years later when he sang the old spirituals to the black people in America who were suffering under segregation. The gospel is that we may go home. A day will come when we will no longer be in exile. A better day is coming. Your kingdom come, your will be done. It's a song that speaks to the person in the place they're at. It's a song that picks them up and says, lift up your head, even though all you can see around you at the moment is heartache. Lift up your head, see what's ahead of you. A better day is coming and we will be in exile no more. The gospel that the Old Testament prophets sang about is the same gospel that Paul Robeson sang about. And it's the same gospel that Martin Joseph sings about. As we close this morning, I think there's a question for all of us. What song are we singing? What song is sung by the way we live our lives? Does your life sing a song of freedom, a redemption song, a song that tells the people around you that there is a better day coming? A song that says, like Paul Robeson and Martin Joseph, a song that says, I understand the situation you're in, but take my hand. Let me pull you up and show you that there is a better way. What song are you singing? I'm going to end with one more quote. It's by Woody Guthrie, another of those fantastic protest singers. This is what Woody Guthrie said about writing songs. He said, I hate a song that makes you think that you are not any good. I hate a song that makes you think that you are just born to lose, bound to lose, no good to nobody, no good for nothing because you are too old or too young or too fat or too slim, too ugly or too this or too that. 
songs that run you down or poke fun at you on account of your bad luck or hard traveling. I am out to fight those songs to my very last breath of air and my last drop of blood. I am out to sing songs that will prove to you that this is your world and that if it has hit you pretty hard and knocked you for a dozen loops, no matter what color, what size you are, how you were built, I am out to sing the songs that make you take pride in yourself and in your work. And the songs that I sing are made up for the most part by all sorts of folks, just about like you. Songs change people. What song are you singing?